something that uh, you and I align on when it comes to, I would say, life and something that we've adopted in our business is slow and steady wins. Mm-hmm. Now we add on wins the race, but life is a race of some sort. I don't know. Maybe the race is not necessary, but slow and steady wins nonetheless. Right. Yeah. And for me, like that's my North star. If we're moving too fast, slow down and check yourself. Now I added that one on. So I hope you don't mind. But so like in addition to slow and steady wins, it's like if you're moving too fast, slow down and check yourself. Yeah. How has slow and steady been something for you? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, that's been a key differentiator, I think, of how I've built my business and you know how you've built your business is I have never tried to build it to get this rocket ship growth where I can just turn it, get huge, get noticed, flip it, sell it to somebody else and cash out. Because like for one, I can't really do that the way I built my business because it's me. It's like so closely tied to my identity. I guess I could sell myself to someone. But the actual idea of just putting one foot in front of the other and showing up every day and doing things consistently that is the thing that I think sets me apart from a lot of other designers that have started their little lifestyle brand or t-shirt brand. At some point they gave up and I'm just here like, I'm not making huge giant releases and crazy things all the time. I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. And for 12 years, I've been doing that to the point now when we launch something, I have these passionate fans and friends and community around me that do help us have big product launches, but I call it the 12 year overnight success. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean, Droplets, Managed Kubernetes, Managed Databases, Spaces, Object Storage, Volume Block Storage, Advanced Networking like Virtual Private Clouds and Cloud Firewalls, Developer Tooling like the Robust API and CLI to make sure you can interact with your infrastructure the way you want to. DigitalOcean is designed for developers and built for businesses. Join over 150,000 businesses that develop, manage, and scale their applications with DigitalOcean. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. From Changelog Media, this is Founders Talk. One-on-one conversations with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and the struggles they go through to build and run their business. I'm Adam Stokoviak, host of this show and editor-in-chief of Changelog.com. Jeff Sheldon is the founder and creator of Ugmonk. Jeff is a designer by trade and an entrepreneur by accident. I've been following Jeff's journey for the better part of Ugmonk's existence, and I'm also a customer. Jeff and I hold several similar values near and dear to our hearts. And in addition to my appreciation for Jeff's product design abilities, I also look forward to his monthly email of the five things he's digging. So that's where we're getting started. Jeff, one of the things I love about you is this, uh, this aspect of sharing, right? You got this email, this simple email that I think has become like a cornerstone of your personal brand, this five things I'm digging. Mm-hmm. I've bought stuff from what you've done. And I've checked out different houses around the world because you have this aesthetic, this style you're, you're into. How did that email originate for you? Like what made you start shipping that thing? Yeah, I mean, it's a funny story. Most of the things like that that happen are not on purpose and was not some master plan to start sending out this email every month. It literally was, I didn't have anything else to talk about. It was an in-between time. I think some of our product got delayed and manufacturing got delayed. And I was like, you know what? I haven't sent out anything 
but I've got a lot of interesting things that I've seen to come across online. And I was like, here's five things I'm digging. And it was nothing to do with Ugmunk, nothing to do with me. It was just fun to kind of spotlight some other things, whether it was architecture or an album I'm listening to. And then from that, I got all these replies like, dude, thanks for sending this. This is cool. Like, I didn't know about this band. I didn't, I've never seen this new typeface. And, and it was like, okay, maybe I should do this again. And that was like two or three years ago, maybe at this point. I don't know how many I've sent, but now it's like the monthly most clicked email that I send out. Mm, I just did a search for five things I'm digging in my email because I can search by subject. And I mean, it goes back a while. So, I mean, I think I've had, I have like a hundred in my initial view for a search, you know, 50 and there's several pages of this. I mean, like lots, you've sent a lot. Yeah. It's different because like, you know, for me, it's truly things that I'm into, things that I enjoy. And part of like the Ugmonk brand and what I'm doing is, is looking at the world through my lens and it attracts other people that like similar things or are exposed to certain things that that have a, a similar mindset, a similar design sense. And that's really what, what I think has kept Ugmonk. Ugmonk is because it's me and all of the products are going through that same lens. All of the emails are written by me. And just people are attracted to it. They either get it or they don't get it. And I'm totally fine if somebody's like, I don't understand what you do and why people, why designers geek out on this. Like, I'm never going to sell them on it. But then the people that, that love it, they're like, dude, this is the only email I open every month. <laughs> like yeah. the only one I look forward to opening. I like that it happened by kind of accident, you know, like a, a downtime, which I don't know, I, I guess you seem to leverage the spaces, I suppose, the margin of life, you know, and not too often do people really appreciate margin as a designer, like you totally appreciate space, like mm-hmm. even the initial start of your business, which from my understanding, please give me the full story, but it is like you design, you want to see your designs on shirts and things like that, but like you understand how to use space and all too often we don't know how to capitalize or even create necessary margin in our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Ugmunk from day one was the side project that was to keep me busy because I wanted to make shirts that I thought looked cool. It was, and everything has been a layer on top of that year after year after year, still with that same mentality. And I think when we create things that we were passionate about and you're doing something that you love, there's a different authenticity. And I know that word is overused, but there's a different authenticity and passion behind that thing than if you're starting a business and truly putting a business hat on, how do we get X number of users? How do we get this monthly revenue? Because you're driven by totally different forces. Mm-hmm. And while money is definitely important and revenue, it sustains our business and we need those things. For me, it has to start with, am I even passionate about this? Like, Do I care enough to invest time in this idea, this concept, this product? And then I think what happens on the other side is people see some of that passion come out through my emails and photos and Instagrams and videos. Hopefully they're getting a sense of like, man, Jeff is really into this thing. It must must be worth looking at. There's a reason for it. Yeah. There's a reason he likes it. And then you have a, you know, a pretty particular style mm-hmm. that I think others appreciate as well. It's, it's why you became successful. It might be helpful though. I know you pretty well. At least I think I do. I mean, I'm not a Jeff Stalker by any means, but I've I've known you for a while and I've been a fan of yours. I'm kind of bummed I don't have your shirt on today. I got at least a couple. So mm-hmm. I, I felt like an idiot not wearing one of your shirts, but that's how it is. But give us a framework, the listeners a framework of like kind of like not so much like when you began, but like kind of give me some timelines, the fact that you're a dad, you know, kind of give me and them some sort of framework to sort of understand Jeff. Yeah. So I'll start way, way back when I was a kid. I've always been into art, making things, creating things, designing things. 
I didn't really know that that was uncommon. Like I thought everybody just wanted to do that. I'd have friends over and be like, do you want to draw? Do you want to like color? And they're like, no, I want to do something else. And <laughs> Play GI Joes and get dirty. Yeah. And like I did that stuff too. And, you know, but I would sit there like with my Lego set or like connects or any type of thing and spend hours and hours like obsessing over creating things from that, you know, not just following the instructions, but trying to make things. And I, I think there's been, that is in my DNA because I have always looked at the world through that lens and I always love looking at something building things, making something out of nothing. And that's what's carried through all the way to Ugmunk, even to this day. Like we're talking about products that I'm making today are still like, it's things that I see in the world and things I want to solve for myself. And I'm able to assemble and bring in all these parts to make something out of that. So eventually studied design and then launched Ugmunk in 2008, which is crazy because that was a long time ago. 11 years ago. The internet was a different place back then. Yeah, it was way different. You know, e-commerce was just getting started. There was no social media. I think maybe YouTube was around, but I don't think Twitter was launched. Facebook was in its infancy. It was just completely different. You could name the, the like five independent t-shirt brands on one hand. You're like, that existed at that time. And I start happened to start around that where it was the playing field was so empty. There was nobody really doing it and was able to carve out this niche for Ugmunk and for the style, the minimalistic style that I'm doing now, I think timing plays a lot of the key part of why I'm still doing it. Because starting a brand today, starting a t-shirt brand, a lifestyle brand, a design brand, it's hard, man. Like there's thousands and thousands of people just showing up on Instagram, launching companies and then closing down a couple months later because it's just so crowded. What's the hardest part? How long is that list? Oh, so, so many. Yeah. Like <laughs> we, we could be here for the, for another two hours. For me, the hardest part, well, two things. So before I had kids, I'd say the hardest part was just focus and deciding what I should be working on and what I should be delegating, what I should say no to, because I have a tendency to just dive in headfirst to anything and then realize, you know, a couple months in, maybe this project wasn't the best use of my time or I'm getting distracted with all different ideas. I have no shortage of ideas, I guess is the thing. So some people say it's hard to come up with ideas. I'm more the opposite. I'm like, I got so many ideas. I got to figure out how am I going to figure out which ones to work on. But then after having kids, the hardest part is certainly juggling being a business owner and being a dad and being a business owner and being a dad and juggling, yeah. juggling all that stuff because it's completely different parts of your brain. And there's obviously time constraints when you have kids and all the things that come along with that that have changed the dynamic of Jeff just running his business however he wants. Um, mm-hmm. I have to be more intentional with my time. But in the, it's also been, hel- I think, a healthy change being able to have those guidelines in place so I'm not just working sun up to sundown every day. And I imagine you work from home, right? Yep. Your studio's yeah. at home, so you're For home now, all the time. Yeah. So For now, yeah, the right. kids are in the background, and it, there's, there's pros and cons to it. I mean, everyone's working from home right now, but I've been doing this for my entire career pretty much. Yeah. I'm with you on that front. Yeah. Same. I mean, in a lot of ways, you could probably commiserate on stories because – let me try this one out then. I, I call them micro moments, right? Some people might think, gosh, you work from home. That must suck to go get coffee and get bombarded by your kids. Nope. Love it. Mm-hmm. Those are my micro moments. Like I yep. get to spend, you know, infinitely more time with my kids throughout the day because I take a break or I go, we do dance parties. Like I'll invite yeah. my sons into the room and we'll turn out the lights. we got like a little disco ball chilling over there kind of thing. Boom, it turns into dance party. But like, I love those micro yeah. moments. What do you think about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I love the moments that I get to have and the fact that we eat like three meals a day together practically every day because we're home yeah. and we're cooking. And that's why quarantine 
didn't feel that much different for me. We're just always home, like never, never going out and meeting people for lunch. But I, I love those moments. And I think there are a lot of things that I get to see that I'm not even realizing how grateful I should be because it's always been this way. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was traveling and never home, I would have missed so many of these little moments with my kids, with them, you know, crashing into my office and taking all the stuff out of my cabinets and, you know, dumping on the floor and pretending to work. Now their thing is like, they both say they have to come in and do emails and they, they get up on my computer and are trying to pretend to work. They're two and four, by the way. Yeah. So yeah, I love that aspect of it. And then I think there's other times where I can switch out of the business owner hat, the designer hat, and I get to the point where I'm like so sidetracked with them that there's this tension of like, ah, I'd love to just keep playing with them, but I have limited hours in the day and like they're going to need dinner on the table and they're going to need, you know, the whole bedtime routine and all that stuff is coming. Right. So there's this tension back and forth of like letting myself just relax, enjoy those moments a little bit longer than just a couple minutes or just say, sorry, kids, I got to go back so that I can spend the rest of the night with you after I'm done work. Like there's no delineation. So it, it goes back and forth. How do you structure your day then? Do you do, you do nine to five or is it, has it got to be more sporadic because you're just naturally more sporadic in, in needs? It's fairly standard, probably anywhere between, well, they get up super early. So it could be seven to five. It could be nine to five. It could be six to four. <laughs> it kind of just varies because they're always up at like five or 6 a.m. Which is the unfortunate thing. Which is not necessarily my favorite thing because I'm not yeah. a morning person. <laughs> Well, nobody likes to get up at five or six unless they are getting up to work out or take a run. And even then, it's still a slog. It's tough. Yeah. Well, I think they get this aspect, which you're keying on, though, is while you and I may be on the fortunate side that we get to, you know, one, work from home. I think with quarantine, you have a lot of people doing that, some enjoying it, some not. But we've had this luxury and blessing to be able to do that with our families. And same, you know, breakfast, mm-hmm. lunch, dinner with my family every day. You know, now sometimes I'm more busy through the afternoon and I might swing by for lunch or grab something quickly or I eat in my office or something like that. But most times I'm trying to balance things. And what I'm getting at is this, you know, you hear this, even like the word authenticity, you hear balance. Mm-hmm. You need to balance. I've heard this idea of work-life harmony yeah, versus like work-life blending or work-life balance. How do you try to frame your balance? Yeah, I think it's like an impossible balance. Like there, there is no right balance that we're all seeking or striving for because you're never going to get to a place where things are perfectly harmonious and you're like, I'm working the exact right number of hours a day and I feel like I'm with my family the exact number of hours I should be because the reality is work ebbs and flows and there's times where it's like I have to work straight through lunch or I have to work, put the kids in bed and I have to work that night to get something done. But then there's other times where it's like, you know what, it's Wednesday and there's nothing going on. This was pre-COVID that we'd be able to say, let's go to the zoo and we'd just take the day off, you know, and like no one's at the zoo in the middle of the week because we would just go like take the kids there. So I think it's more of like a, you know, kind of a, a give and take and ebb and flow for what it looks like work and life. I'm very grateful and very thankful that my work is something I'm passionate about and I enjoy. So it doesn't necessarily feel like work equals hate, life equals enjoyment. So it's not just working for the weekend. It's certainly like, I enjoy this. I enjoy being with my kids. There's times where I don't want to be with my kids and there's times where I don't want to be working. Yeah. But yeah, I think that question comes up a lot. Like there's, we're all seeking this utopian state where we just figure out how to work life balance everything. It's always changing. Mm -hmm. 
right? Like it's it's never static. It's always changing to some degree. There's some similarity in the change, but even the change is different, you know, and, and unique. So you can't say, well, like you said, it's this way every single day and my life is like this and it's boring and it's the same. No, it's it's dynamic and always in, in some sort of rhythm of, of change. Something that uh, you and I align on when it comes to, I would say, life and something that we've adopted in our business is slow and steady wins. Mm-hmm. Now we add on wins the race, but life is a race of some sort. I don't know. Maybe the race is not necessary, but slow and steady wins nonetheless. Right. Yeah. And for me, like that's my North star. If we're moving too fast, slow down and check yourself. Now I added that one on, so I hope you don't mind. But so like in addition to slow and steady wins, it's like if you're moving too fast, slow down and check yourself. Yeah. How has slow and steady been something for you? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's that's been a key differentiator, I think, of how I've built my business and you know how you've built your business is I have never tried to build it to get this rocket ship growth where I can just turn it, get huge, get noticed, flip it, sell it to somebody else and cash out. Because like, for one, I can't really do that the way I built my business because it's me. It's like so closely tied to my identity. I guess I could sell myself to someone. But the actual idea of just putting one foot in front of the other and showing up every day and doing things consistently, that is the thing that I think sets me apart from a lot of other designers that have started their little lifestyle brand or t-shirt brand at some point they gave up and I'm just here like I'm not making huge giant releases and crazy things all the time. I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. And for 12 years, I've been doing that to the point now when we launch something, I have these passionate fans and friends and community around me that do help us have big product launches. But I call it the 12 year overnight success. Mm. Yeah, I have to admit, I haven't bought analog yet or got on the Kickstarter, but I plan to. All right. I'm not an early adopter, but I'm an adopter for sure. And well, you got like 30 days in a Kickstarter. So no matter what, you're early. So I'm late early. Yeah. But I, I do plan. Now we before we go into analog, I do want to mention gather. So you've you've launched shirts, you've launched new things, you've got other people's products in the Edmund store, you know, you've got coffee, different like different interests. We are we're both fans of fellow. I love fellow brand stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh you've got a couple coffee things that are like way out of my price range, so I'm not gonna buy those. But we at least appreciate the design and style of things. Now, you've launched other things before. Gather in particular uh, was one of your most sort of recent, larger, singular products that was sort of tangentially, mostly in like the design space, not so much, you know, I would say like laser fit into Ugmunk. Like you, mm-hmm. you sell things that are useful to people who care about aesthetics, mm-hmm. simplicity, minimalism, essentialism, whatever it might be, however you frame it. How would you compare the launches the state currently, I mean, I know we're still in the launch, but the inertia of them, there's some sort of a loss that you can at least recognize. Yeah. I mean, up until 2017 was when I launched gather and that's the modular desk organizer that's, that's all customizable. And that Kickstarter blew up way beyond our biggest expectations. And we tried to plan for, you know, worst case scenario, best case scenario, and it just blew the best case scenario out of the water, ended up raising $430,000 in 60 days on Kickstarter And that was awesome and then also really hard because what that meant was we had this product that we had to ship to thousands of people. We had to manufacture. We were going through manufacturing overseas and learning about all the things and doing things at scale, handling customer service, handling lost shipments, all of that growth, which was amazing on the front end. And people see the the numbers on there and they're like, oh, cool. So you get to pocket half a million. Jeff, you're rich. You're loaded, Jeff. What are you going to do with all that money? Go on a vacation now. (laughs) 
but it was a you know it was a really big learning experience. I think that the product has been really successful. People love it. We're still selling them to this day, and it's really just brought a lot of things back kind of full circle in that learning experience. And in that, I mean, doing things at scale and launching a product and going big set us up to be like to get on shows like Shark Tank or things like that, where we're just going to be this big brand. We're going to try and get into, you know, West Elm and Target and all this because the Kickstarter did so well, it sent us down that, that kind of like thought experiment of, oh, what if we could just cash out and do this thing huge and sell it off? And none of that really happened. So it was really successful direct to consumer, direct to our customers. It's still very successful. But I realized in that moment, like, I don't really want to be the guy standing at a trade show selling one product for the rest of my life, trying to get into all these big stores and, and strike up retail deals. So after that whole process of kind of like going through that, realizing my eyes got big, wanting to go huge with that, and then coming back full circle to like, I just want to make more things. I want to make more products. I have more ideas I want to put out there. How do I get things done? How do I bring the manufacturing local? How do I have everything under one roof? And that's where we are today, where I launched our second Kickstarter called Analog, and I'm approaching it completely different. So it's still going huge as far as the number of backers, and over 3,000 backers at the time we're recording right now um, raised over $300,000, and we're going to have a lot of work to do to ship all these out. But I think the approach that we're doing with this is very laser focused on like, this is a product for a specific need for a specific group of people. And we're going to sell it directly through our site. And really that's it. Like we're not going to try and push this into other retail outlets. We're really trying to make a product, make it here in the U S and make it really well, even if our margins aren't as big and right. ship it directly to people by our own team. Like we're going to ship out thousands of these. We're not going to outsource that. We're not going to do that. Like we truly want to bring this all under our, our roof. So we're doing things the long, hard way is what I say. Mm. There's a lesson there, the long, hard way. It's interesting, that kind of choice, though, because Shark Tank has this inertia, right? Millions of dollars, big mm-hmm. success. You know, even whenever you watch it, you know, they have like internal commercials of like other entrepreneurs and founders who have come on Shark Tank and they started out here and this is where they're at now. And it, you know, it's it's painting this life, which I'm sure is great for some if it's at your choice. But what I like about someone like you and what I think is important to key on is that that path isn't isn't the path for you. And yeah. you know that. But you took the time to think through it and not just go down that path because everybody says, well, Jeff, you've been successful. You should go this route. Like this is the default. And that's what I like about you, that you're sort of like your alternative, <laughs> but still not like non-mainstream. Like you're still, you know – yeah. influential and thoughtful and and that kind of thing. And so so too often do people just go down the path they think they should go down because everyone else is going down that path and it's the default path or or that the the lore is truly the millions or you know being on Barbara's team or Mark's team like I would love to have Mark as a business partner mm-hmm. cuz he's probably crazy man he's probably amazing. <laughs> yeah. But gosh, what kind of weight would that put on me? That would that make me change my business? to suit Mark's psyche or my psyche, you know, in terms of like, how do we think about business? And I think that's what I like most about your approach because you've taken the time to, to analyze what does Jeff really want from his business? Yeah. I mean, you probably wouldn't be eating lunch with your kids every day. Had you taken on investment, right? Like you're going to have to, I'd be eating lunch with them. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And it's not slow and steady wins anymore. It's, it's, 
how do we get to the next ABC point as fast as we can? Or how do we double that as quick as we can? Because that's the reality is they want to double their money. They want to triple their money. That's what investors, you know, why they're investing in things. So not having that external pressure to please anyone and just going at our own pace and yeah. doing things, knowing that we'll never have, I can't burn $100,000 on Facebook ads and just be like, oh, that didn't work because I don't have money to play with. Like I've got to be really conscious of how I'm spending the money in the business how we're taking steps to launch new products versus just kind of let's see if we can do it and oh well it didn't work we lost the investors money like it puts like yeah. the pressure on your own back to be more conscious of that and just to know that there's probably a ceiling like i'm never gonna be a multi-billion dollar company even multi-million i don't see myself growing to a huge company because what i like to do is make things tell stories and sell things like yeah. That that's the thing that I really want to, you know, hone in on is that's what I want to be doing for a long time. What's up, Founders Talk listeners? This is Adam. Hey, you may know, because I've said it before at least once, that we have a show on Changelog called Brain Science. You can check it out at changelog.com slash brain science. We are exploring the human brain so we can understand things like behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and really what it means to be human. And my co-host is a doctor. So it's not just me, idiot me, who doesn't know much about the brain, just sort of curious. But my co-host is a doctor, Dr. Mary Reese. And we recently had our very first guest on the show. So we're now inviting experts onto the show to dive deeper with us. And this is a preview of episode 25 titled The Science Behind Caffeine. And we're talking to Daniel Rath. She's a notable expert and product developer in the caffeine and energy drink space. And Danielle is sharing some insights on the five levels of fatigue as it relates to caffeine. So you created a sort of pyramid, right? Yes. Relative to caffeine consumption to help people go, what stage am I at? Yes. Can you tell our listeners more about that? I would love to. This is called the five levels of fatigue. And it's a pyramid with level zero at the bottom of the pyramid and level five at the tippy tippy top. And so the reason I made it a pyramid is because if you think about the x-axis, that is your productivity. So the base of the pyramid is very wide. That's how alert and engaged and and excited you feel about life. And as you get up to the tippy top, the x-axis, the tippy top of the pyramid is very, very small. That's because when you get all the way to fatigue level five of five, your productivity is very low. So with each level, with each level of fatigue, there's different symptoms you might feel. So for example, fatigue level one is commonly associated with dehydration and drowsiness. So if you're doing something that's boring and repetitive, or if you're doing something that you haven't had enough water recently, you can feel tired, but caffeine is not the solution. You might need water. You might need to get up. You might need to take a little break and change what you're doing. Caffeine is not the solution for fatigue level one because your fatigue is coming from boredom and dehydration. At fatigue level two, you're feeling more tired and you might need some caffeine, but not a lot of it. You feel a little distracted. You feel a little lethargic. So you just need a little bit of caffeine or you need someone to make you laugh. You might need something to, to boost that dopamine in other ways than caffeine. The next level up from that is when you're really stressed out 
and struggling. That's fatigue level three. So you need more caffeine at this point. And I've got to find All right. Keep listening at changelaw.com slash brain science slash 25. That will take you to the episode titled The Science Behind Caffeine. Again, changelaw.com slash brain science slash 25. Or you can search for brain science in your favorite podcast app and be a subscriber. We love to have you as a listener. It's one thing to say slow and steady wins. It's another thing to to live it. But I say more so to keep living it because like you can do it one time. It's like okay, great. This one time, slow and steady wins. But how do you kind of come back to that every single time you feel the pressure to go faster, go a different direction? Like how do you kind of keep remembering slow and steady wins? Because that's not easy. Yeah, definitely not. And if it, you know. I talk to any other e-commerce friends or different circles of, you know, business owners and Twitter and all this stuff where you hear everything is usually focused around growth or celebrating acquisitions or celebrating these big things. And you almost feel left out like, well, yeah, I'm never really going to make a giant splash in the world because I'm not going to get written up on any site for how much money we raised, how, you know, our fancy new team and all the crazy stuff that comes along with how they spend the money and advertising and have a billboard in Times Square or whatever it is like we're not going to ever be that and you just really have to be at the end of the day be okay with it like this is not who we're trying to be I'm not trying to be another direct to consumer brand that you know has done amazing things like I think that's a whole separate path and it's not wrong but I just know it's not me like I don't want to be the next Warby Parker and Harry's and Allbirds growing these huge companies because it's just not, that's not what I like to do. I don't like to build and scale companies. I like to make things. So if I'm chasing people that are doing something like that and doing it very successfully at the end of that, like I wouldn't actually be fulfilled or enjoy the process of getting there because that's not my skill set is even designed for. Mm. It's about knowing what you want. And that's too easy to say it's it's about knowing what you want to optimize for right like you have particular you know a particular style particularly way you want to live your life particular things you value and i think a lot of the journey for an entrepreneur is like what do i personally value because once you kind of understand that and you have those things if not written down at least etched in your mind somewhere on your heart in your soul it's a little easier to take that first next step. And like you had said before, it's one foot after the other, not the other way around. I mean, it seems kind of logical, but maybe that's because we've been doing this a while mm-hmm. individually. And then, you know, this this is your story more than mine. But I feel like that's the same for me. It's like, but, but I've been living it. So it's easy for me to say that because it's second nature. But for some out there, it's like they need representation. They need to know it's possible. It's, it's okay to not want to go down that route because – you value eating three meals a day with your family or when the pandemic is not in its the state it is and it's easy to go to the zoo. Hey, Thursday was kind of a suck. I, I want to take the afternoon off or the morning off or whatever. Let's go do something fun. What do we want to do? We have a zoo membership. Let's go to the zoo. Great. Or let's mm-hmm. just go on a, a walk or a hike or whatever. You know, not everybody understands that that's, that's possible, I suppose. And I think it comes down to like understanding your values. Yeah, that stuff doesn't show up on your balance sheet and when you're you're pitching someone to raise money, like those are the, all these intangible things about 
designing a business the way you want to design it. And I, I don't think it's a one size fits all where I, I think some people are good at managers and good at scaling businesses and, and good at sales full time. And that's what they should be doing. But I don't think everybody should follow that path and feel like bigger is better. Or like, why are we sprinting to the end to cross the finish line? And then you get to the finish line and you're like, oh, I guess I'll just do this again. Like, why not just pause and enjoy the journey, enjoy the process, learn from those things. The same thing that I've been doing is just learning. Like the entire 12 years I've been doing this has been in one giant learning process. And <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's like, you can't put that on paper. You can't go to college for that. You can't do anything to get that except for truly experience it. Yeah. Learn by doing for real, basically. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about, maybe it's it's too deep or maybe it's just deep enough, but like actually trying to ship what you got to ship. So it's one thing to make it. It's one thing to design it. It's one thing to to even find a unique way to create a video that markets it the way the Kickstarter allows you to do. But it's another thing to fulfill it all. You And you mentioned this idea of like local, in-house. What makes you feel that way versus like outsourcing? I think it's kind of obvious to some degree, but like why do you kind of care about local, that kind of aspect, bringing it home? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit countercultural in the way of, you know, Tim Ferriss, four-hour work week, outsource everything, outsource your life. And I think there's actually valuable things in that book and valuable things that Tim would talk about. But this idea of if I outsource everything, I can basically just sit in my chair on a beach and veg and all of the parts of the business work for me. The reality is that doesn't work. Like there has to be hands and people and, and things, processes in place because things don't go right all the time. And outsourcing things in theory should be the best way of doing it because you outsource to someone who's better at that specific skill, whether it's shipping a physical product, coding a website, writing copy, but the reality is when you outsource, it doesn't just magically happen and come back finished, perfect, done every single time. And there is a cost of actually doing those things. And for us, outsourcing our shipping, outsourcing anything else that we were to try to do, the cost of losing customers' trust or losing that brand recognition and brand value that we built is everything. Because I'm in this for the long game and I'm not in it just to sell a product and then you know, turn around and start up something else. The Ugg Monk brand is what I've invested in. And when it comes to shipping a physical product, I think those relationships, whether it's customer service for something that went wrong with the product or a shipment, all the way down to just physically inspecting the products, going through our hands, not trusting some fulfillment service or Amazon to say like, yeah, your product looks good. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's closing all of those gaps and really making like an airtight business to bring it all in-house, have everything here. Um, it's expensive. It's again, it's the long, hard way of doing it. But I do think at the end of the day, the customers get the best experience and it builds that lifetime value for us. You had said something there too about, and this is where we align too, is is this uh, this idea of, did you say customer's trust? Mm-hmm. Is that what you said? Yeah. I'm trying to uh, phrase it properly. And for us, it's the similarity to that is, is listener's trust. And so we obviously are a podcast. Podcast, we have six active podcasts on changeall.com. Been doing it for a long time. Shipped lots of shows. We have great brand name sponsors that we love that help us build our business and they're great, amazing partners. But sometimes we get the odd question where not that they intentionally want to, but somehow, some way we objectify or get asked to objectify our audience, which basically erodes listener trust. And so similar to you, you know, if that's our line, we never break that line, right? Like if we break that listener's trust, Mm -hmm. it's for nothing. Like if you're listening to this show and you don't trust that this show is authentic, 
and I'm literally talking to Jeff and Jeff's a cool dude and I've known him for years and love his story and finally he's on this show. If that is broken, what's the point? You know, what's the point? And if I make choices in my business that make me objectify that or break that rule, it goes against everything. So customers trust for you that when I read your five things you're digging, right? Or mm-hmm. I know you're launching analog and like for some reason it's applicable to you. Maybe it's applicable mm-hmm. to me, but because I trust you, I can think like your next thing you launch is probably because you put a lot of thought into it. Mm-hmm. That's the brand I think of when I think of Jeff and Ugmonk and what you're doing, you know, like is that you're very thoughtful, you're meticulous, you're minimal, you have certain aesthetic qualities you like. And I'm going to trust that when you do something because of the choices you've made, that's still true. Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing that you can't buy or just pull out of thin air. You know, you can't spin up a, a new brand tomorrow and have instant trust with people. That's why people have like celebrity endorsements and all these things. They're trying to like show like, no, we're legit. We're legit. But the better way of doing it is just to show up, be authentic, show that you care, mm-hmm. deliver on what you say. You know, a lot of Kickstarter, a lot of people are, are really jaded about Kickstarter because they've never shipped the products that they backed. And I don't know if I want to back anything again because these creators screwed us over. Now it's like we've delivered for 12 years, we've delivered products. We've built this trust that people don't have to wonder if we're going to ship the product, if it's going to arrive, what condition it's going to be in, if we're going to take care of them, if there's a problem. And our repeat customer rate is through the roof. Like, I don't know what the industry standards are and stuff like that, but I can tell you for sure that ours is way, way above that. Now, our top line revenue number might be way below some of our competitors or, or some of the people running similar brands, but our loyalty is so strong. And I feel like that's more important to me. I'd rather have the 1,000 true fans, the Kevin Kelly article that's been around for years and years, 1,000 true fans who will show up and buy and trust and support me for whatever I do because they actually care, not because mm-hmm. I have a you know half a million people or something following me on social media. You act differently when it's the long road. Like you said, the long, hard road, when it's the, the long term, the long play, the long tail. All too often in business do we hear advice, seek advice even potentially from those who are short-term players. And it's not that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. It's just they have different goals. You know, they fit them for whatever reason. They're optimizing for short-term versus long-term. And it, you just make different choices. Uh, you know, I can't help but notice you got this aspect of longevity and very high personal touch in all the aspects of business. And then obviously you have scale problems as businesses eventually scale, whether you want them to or not. You can control it mm-hmm. as best you can, but still businesses are little animals and they grow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just how it works. And sometimes you just have to make hard choices. How do you follow that line of like CEO, business, decision maker slash designer? Like how do you structure your week, your day? Like how do you even mentally create the frameworks to like today I'm CEO, Jeff. Tomorrow I'm designer, Jeff. Today mm-hmm. I'm packing boxes, Jeff. Like, I don't know. How do you juggle all these different facets? Yeah, some of that I've figured out over the years that is truly worth delegating and bringing in other people. So like, I'm obviously not the one shipping out every single product we sell, um, or I would never have time to make things. And what I've really tried to do is bring in people that complement the things that I either shouldn't be doing or the things that I'm not good at. Um, so I have my sister-in-law who runs all of our operations, customer service, and has really taken that over in these last, I guess, like two years and she's been able to offload a lot of the stuff from my plate that I was just doing, like admin work and invoicing. I just did it because that's what I just always did. 
But what that meant is as the stuff grew, there was less and less time to create new products, less and less time to do anything, record podcasts. Like I just didn't have time to do those things. So finding specific people that you can trust to take those things off my plate, like that's what's been the key, I think, for for figuring out how do I create this space and time and just being self-aware of what I want to be doing. Like, do I want to be designing all day? Do I want to be scaling a business all day? Do I want to be speaking at conferences? Do I want to be like going through that thought experiment to figure out too exactly what I want to do? And then how do I get there? How do I get rid of, okay, I don't need to be the person ordering inventory right now. I should have someone else do that. Or how do I figure out someone else to source packaging for us? I don't need to be the person sourcing it. I just want to design it. And going through these little things of like figuring out the exact lane I want to be in day to day. Yeah. How do you do that though and not lose touch? Because that's what I find hard is, is delegation. I'm not saying that's not a good answer, but at some point you're like, now I've lost touch because I've delegated. How do you keep, I guess, a heartbeat with the process in touch with the tangibles that you've let go? How do you kind of maintain the things that are extensions of you? Since a lot of Ugmunk is very much like an extension of your personal likes and dislikes, mm-hmm. how do you keep in touch? Yeah, I mean, we're still such a small scale that I don't I don't have like, you know, an all staff meeting is three of us. It's not like, right, okay. you know, like 50 of us. And it's usually breakfast. I don't have to be like the undercover boss TV show where I sneak back into my company and nobody even knows that I'm their their boss. That's a cool show, by the way. I still love that show. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I'm still very high touch on a lot of things. And I, the processes or the ways that we do things is not like, I don't know what's going on over there. Um, I think I'm very much involved, but maybe the, the actual, the action that it takes to ship a product or the action takes to reply to customer emails. I'm still aware of those things, but I'm not the one doing the physical, uh, work when it comes to that. So I don't know. I don't think we have it done dialed in perfectly and it's still, there's still things I'm doing that I really shouldn't be doing and things that I want to be doing more of. So I think it's a learning process too, but mm-hmm. it's a, an interesting way cause we have a family dynamic. It's a family run business. We're all here locally so we can actually like be in person. We can see our products rather than just like this 50 person team scattered across the globe and nobody really knows what's going on except for what's in Slack. Yeah. Does that make uh, the family dynamic difficult by any means? Like is, is Thanksgiving easier or harder because of, you know, I don't know, like somebody's slacking, somebody's, I mean, I'm just hypotheticals yeah. of course, but like at some point there's relationship tension, family or not, right? Like, is there some sort of like unspoken or maybe spoken bonds like, hey, listen, we're we're family, we're doing this, but the thing that matters most is family. So first and foremost, if you got an issue, we're family. Mm-hmm. Do you foresee any future issues? Are you curbing against those? What are your thoughts on that dynamic in, in business? When people find out that I work with my family, there's two reactions. Either, dude, that's awesome. Like you employ your mom and she does all your shipping or how the heck do you work with your family? Like I would kill my brother, I would kill my sister. And so I always preface it by saying like, for our family, the chemistry or whatever it is, it seems to work well. Not that we don't have our differences, not that there's like tension involved, but it just seems to work well. And there's a lot of trust and a lot of closeness in our family, but I don't recommend it to everyone. It's like, if you knew you would bite off your brother's head as soon as you start working with him, probably not a good idea to go into business with him. So there's not really a definite line between 
like, okay, this is family time. We're not talking about business. I think it blends because it's, it's all already blended one thing and we're, we're getting together. And I don't think that's really been a problem. I mean, there's times where work probably takes too much precedent and inventory has physically overrun my parents' house. Cause that's where all the things are still stored up until a couple of months from now, we'll be moving it all out. But yeah, I have a very supportive family behind me and that's something also that I can't just take for granted because not everybody has that support system. Yeah, that's true. I know, you know, for me, for my wife and I, there's times when, you know, I tell her about my day and and she's involved in things too. Maybe not in all the details, but she's emotionally and mentally involved and helps me behind the scenes discuss things and weigh options and opportunities and reminds me slow and steady wins and slow down and check yourself if you're going too fast. I mean, she helps me be my rudder to like, don't go too far into the deep end. There's times when we're like, we're having our time and it ends up becoming, or I end up bringing up stuff from work and like next thing I know it's 20 minutes later and I've just talked about a bunch of work stuff, but she loves me and she's supportive of me. It's a unique process that you have to be aware that don't go too far, that there's still a relationship there. There's still a marriage there. There's still, you know, in my case, in your case, it's your sister-in-law. I don't know what your wife has done for the business or where she operates at, but it's got to be a challenge. And you don't, you don't want, you know, work to overrule and the relationship to suffer as a result. And that's what I was hoping to get some wisdom from, from you. It's just like this idea that, you know, in the end, it's family. It's not business first. It's family first, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, keeping those things in check is hard. It's not always like the natural thing where I'm ready to jump in and play with the kids. If I just had something crazy happen during the day with work, it's like I want to tell my wife, I want to go into all this detail about these things. And, <laughs> and she's like, you know, they're ready to eat dinner. Like they want to hear, they want to come play with you and, you know. They want to do Legos. Climb all over you and turn you into a playground and all that stuff. And Yes. But trying to just get those reality checks. Like it's more of a self-awareness thing than it is anything. Just to be like, okay, I'm doing it again. I need to stop. Got to put work aside and we'll come back to it later. Or when the kids are in bed or whatever, we'll talk about this. So it, it's hard because I don't think, you know, if I hated my job, maybe it'd be different because I'd be like, finally, I get to leave the office early and I, I don't have to deal with that person. But when you enjoy it, it can have the opposite effect where it can still overrun your life, but in like a, a bad way where the tension becomes, can you just let work go for a minute? Like, can you stop talking about work? Right. What are your thoughts on how how you work is perceived by your children? And I'll, I'll frame it like this. My wife and I were talking about this recently. I'm like, she's like, Babe, it's kind of weird because your son, sure, it's pandemic. Let's preface it with the fact that we're all quarantined anyways. But as we said before, prior to that, we both already work from home anyway. So this is life. How we do things is life. It's not different because of COVID or the quarantine. She's like, you walk across the house and you go to work and then you come out and like it's other kids don't have that perception, you know. So how do you take what you've done as a father, but like impress them that how work is different or how work can be different. Or, and I think it's also important to see your passion for what you do. Like my, my son had to do this thing for school. He's in preschool. He's four years old. And he had to explain what his dad did. And it was comical. I loved it because apparently I listened to music all day. <laughs> you got headphones on. You're just jamming out. Sure. I mean, I got headphones on. We're talking to mics. We have music on our podcast. I edit. There's music involved. You know, there's definitely music involved, but like his perception of what I do is uniquely different than most other kids. 
Mm-hmm. And like, how does that shape him? What I mean by that is like, how do you let what you do for work impress your kids and like who dad is and like your passions in life and the things you value from that perspective, like from a work perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. And something that, you know, my kids are two and four right now, two and a half and four. And they're just now to the point of questioning things, you know, deeper questions, you know, what did my son say the other day? Where, where does strawberries come from? Like, he was just like genuinely curious. Like, do they, you know, they come from animals? They come from a tree? Like, just like things where you don't think about. And they're starting to pick up on different things about work. And like, you know, they're, they're, I have all these, the damaged pieces from the gathers around and they play with them and they're putting stuff in them and they pretend like, Hey, I'm sending a gather to someone like they're, they kind of starting to get the concept like, Hey, we sell, make and sell physical products. And then they're trying to like reenact it. But I don't think they understand that most of the time, you know, most kids don't get to see their dad all the time or walking on him in the middle of a call and, and all that. Now it's becoming more normal because everyone's at home, but there's things where I I think as they're growing up, I want to make sure that I'm being intentional with showing them what I do, how I do it, how it's different. And also, you know, for them to be grateful for the time and the, the, the perks that they receive, even though they didn't have a choice, but for them to see like, hey, not everybody gets to see their parents this much. You know, there's a yeah. lot of things where it feels normal to you guys. Um, and I'd love to get them involved in the business in some way, not like they have to inherit Ugmunk and have to carry on the family name, but just to show them what it looks like to pack a hundred orders and get all sweaty carrying boxes up the stairs. Like that's, that's part of it too. And I think that's going to be fun just to, to bring them into the whole idea of what we do. Yeah. That's such a cool thing. I think, you know, and I feel so fortunate because we do podcast. My son, that we have the Eli show, my son's name's Eli. And so, uh, we haven't done one in a bit, but we do a podcast together. Everyone's wants, it's usually about trains or, you know, certain colors or questions like where do strawberries come from, for example, like we'll just talk on this thing. And like it, I want him to see that, you know, it's uniquely different than what other dads he sees out there in the world might do, but it's not that it's different or better. It's just like, this is just, it's unique. It's, mm-hmm. it's different. And I want to, I want him to even feel welcome. Like, I don't know how you are with your office or your workspace at all at home, but like, I don't want him to feel or, or my kids to feel like, you can't come in here. Like mm-hmm. I want them to come in here. Be careful of what you yeah. touch, but you can come in here. You know, you're not not welcomed. Like I want you to be able to come in. Obviously, there's times and places where it's more or less better, but for the most part, I want you to to feel like this isn't dad's world. Mm-hmm. You're welcome in here. Yeah, I have like this one cabinet back here that's their cabinet. It's just got all the extra hardware and pieces of stuff in it. And they come in and take it all out and make a big mess. But they know like that's their one cabinet that they get to play with and pretend to do work and deliver me my coffee and all these things. Yeah. So, yeah, trying to keep them incorporated. And and like big picture, what I desire is that they'd be able to see how many options there are to do what you want to do in life. Like, yeah. you don't have to follow a certain path. and. I think so many people are just assume you have to do this. Like you have to go to school, you have to go to college, you have to be this, you have to work your way up the ladder. And like a lot of people just don't fit that mold. And there's so many other things that you can do with your life. And, you know, I don't think as we're seeing college and things kind of fall apart and the whole virtual thing right now where people are like, wait, why am I paying $100,000 a year for this virtual (laughs) Zoom college? That there's just a lot of different opportunities out there and different ways to that are not better or worse to go to a trade school, 
to become a podcast editor, to design, to do any of those things. There's just a lot of opportunity. And I hope that they see like Ugmonk being such a different thing that it gives them ideas to do what they want to do. Absolutely. Let's laser in on analog. I'm really curious about, you know, the inception of this thing. It's, I mean, it's literally a physical list that you handwrite. It's a unique system. From what I can understand, you've been doing it for years. What's been the process of creation? What does it mean to you? Yeah, so analog is what I'm calling the simplest productivity system. And when I describe it, one of the key things is this paper to-do list. It's three by five index cards that I've designed does not replace your digital system. It's not like, oh, instead of writing emails, now I use a typewriter and a carrier pigeon. Like, oh, that's better because there's no distraction. It's like, no, this actually helps me work better digitally because I'm able to pull my tasks out, put up to 10 things on this card, write them down and have it stare at me all day, every day, or right next to my monitor. And that's what keeps me focused. And there's something about that and the tangible crossing things off, having it there, not having to swipe up and look at it or switch tabs to look at it. That has worked really, really well for me. And that's where I created a product out of it. What is the system? Is it simply, you know, a daily thing or is it like a a long-term, here's a week goal? Is there more to it than just simply every single day? I use it daily. So there's three cards. It divides everything into today, next, or someday. And then the today card is what I start with every single day. And if I don't start with that card, I'm usually in my inbox or scrolling YouTube or something. And and before I know it, half the day's gone. So the today card, I fill out every single day. And then anything that doesn't get crossed off automatically goes on the, the next day's card as I start that day. And what happens is you start carrying over these tasks that you're not doing or not getting to. And by like the fifth or sixth time, you're like, either I don't need to do this or I just need to get it done first and finally do, you know, pick up the phone, make that call and do all the things. And it's beyond just being an index card and being a a well-designed index card with this wooden holder. It's really a way of thinking and it's about prioritizing. It's about constraints. It's about really saying what is enough? Like how much did I do today? If I have a digital list of 53 things and I only get to five, I feel guilty. Like there's this productivity guilt. I didn't get to enough things. The analog card constrains things to up to 10 things. Sometimes I only put two or three things on there that I have to get done that day, cross them off, and I'm done. Like there's a sense of completion. What about the design process to this? Like how did you get to this framework where you just literally, you know, somebody else's three by five cards, you know, turning them vertically, writing things down, you know, or was it a blank sheet? How did you get to this system to think like, I should design this and make this a thing and get to where you're at now? Like, how did that play out? Yeah, years and years of using regular index cards and saying like, this keeps working for me. Maybe I should design a custom one, print out some ones just on my own printer. The card itself is really, really simple. But what I did was pull in other ideas and concepts that have already been established as ways to be productive, getting things done you know, things that other people have shown me, bullet journaling, a lot of these concepts, I'm not taking the credit that I created them, but I I brought them all into a format that seemed to work for me in this card format, rather than like a big journal or, or something else. So I brought all these concepts in and then the card is just, you know, it's very, very simple, but it's effective enough and it's open enough that you can use it however you want. Like you might not use it the same way that I do. And I color in, you know, half the circle if something is in progress and fill it in if it's all the way complete put an arrow if it's delegated, but like the card itself can be used in so many different ways and can be used for other things. Just simply. Yeah. People are even telling me, you know, some of the the friends I had testing it was 
I, I bring this to meetings with me. I bring one three by five card to a meeting and that's all the notes that I can take. And then I leave and I don't bring my laptop. And just the, the difference that's made in the clarity of like discussing things without having browsers showing up and, you know, you just get distracted. Let me show you this. Let me show you this. So just like, I don't know, I think it's really a shift of mindset more than it is just a physical invention because people already write things down. I don't have to convince anybody to say, you should write this down. Like uh, I already use post-it notes or I already use a journal. I already use this or I lose it. I can't find this. I put it in a, you know, the back of an envelope. So I'm really just pulling in all of these concepts, both physically and mentally and making analog what it is. And if you're listening and you're thinking, I want to see this thing, I'm sure you can just Google analog Kickstarter, A-N-A-L-O-G, like analog, kind of like change log, just kidding. But <laughs> uh, you know, there's a video at the top there, well done video. I mean, Jeff, there's nothing that you do. Gosh, sometimes I hate you, but sometimes I love you, man. Like you're so good at like presenting things so well, man. Like I, I'm very impressed with how you show off your shirts, how you show off your products, the the way you approach creating videos like this. Like it's just so good, so good. Thanks, man. Yeah, I actually shot the video and edited the video myself because I was planning on going down to uh, shoot with a whole film crew and editing and all that stuff. It was going to be like a whole production, but then COVID happened. And I was like, oh, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> like, I don't know. Do I just wait till this is over? And here yeah. we are months and months later. So a friend challenged me and he's like, come on, you can do video. You've done some other stuff before. And I'm like, ah, I don't know if I can make it good enough. Like, I really want this video to be awesome. So I spent like a month just, you know, planning it and working on it, diving into Final Cut, trying to learn all the things. And uh, I had my brother over for a couple of times to hold the camera. So it's like people were asking how I was holding the camera with me at the desk. And then the two of us just worked together and I just edited it, hired an animator to do some of the animations and uh, spent way, way too many hours on working on that final video. Scrutinizing the details, man. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I love obsessing over that stuff. So that's maybe one of my strengths and my weaknesses. I could spend all day, just weeks and weeks working on a single thing. Is there a future with a detail shirt coming soon? Say it again. Is there a, that was tongue in cheek, meaning you sweat the details. Oh, sweat the details. Yeah. I did have a shirt that says all in the details. All in the details. Yep. And that's, that's definitely it. I mean, you know, if you're not obsessing over or sweating the details, like those are two ways you can kind of frame that. And that's, that's what we tend to tell ourselves. But then it also is like, you know, perfection is the enemy. So sometimes when you sweat the details, you're sweating perfection. And are you serving perfection? Are you serving done? And mm -hmm. you can, you know, sort of ebb and flow and flounder from there. But you got such a good delivery and kudos to you for, you know, making it work and still delivering, you know, the Ugmunk style that I'm, I'm used to seeing, like, it's well done. It's really well done. Thanks, man. Very impressed. I think it goes back to, again, like that process. I actually had a ton of fun in that process. You know, I had this story in my head, worked through so many different revisions of scripting it out and storyboarding it out trying to get concrete, like how do I get this idea communicated and how do we shoot the B-roll and how do we get this concept across to people in a three-minute video. And even though that's like a challenge and it can be hard and I don't feel like I'm a professional filmmaker, I do enjoy trying to figure that out, like dissecting other people's work, studying other film and understanding that stuff to a point where I'm like, I'm going to try this. And not to claim that I am going to win some film festival award ever, but to get something to the level where people would be like, wait, you shot that yourself? And I'm like, that's the best compliment you could give. <laughs> well, I mean, you did go to, what was it, Iceland? Was it, yeah, was it but that was a point and shoot camera in Iceland and that video blew up. That was probably like the most watched video I've ever made. That's impressive though. 
Yeah. And we'll link that in the show notes for the listeners, but like that video was amazing. So, I mean, to me, you know, one aspect that I like about what we've been able to do here at Changelog is that, you know, it started out as just a podcast, right? Just, right? That, that keyword, just. But, you know, then it got into all these other tentacles of things I love to do, photography, film. We haven't done all these things all the time, but we have done some of them over the years. But what it, it's like this playground of like, okay, here's the kind of core interest in brand, but here's all these other tangential, interesting sub things I like to be involved in. And this gets to be a place that I can make my long-term play and interesting playground to do not just podcasts or, Mm -hmm. you know, just podcasts, but like to do so much more than just simply that. It's like, that's what that is for you. It's like, I'm impressed, but I'm not surprised. Let's say it like that. I'm totally impressed, but not surprised because I saw that video that you did and, and sure it was just point and click, but you got a certain style, and if you can study somebody else enough or people that, that impress you, then mimicry is – I don't want to say it's easy, but if you're good at what you do already and you already have this designer aspect to you, with a little effort, the, the surprising thing is that most people can do a lot of things they don't think they can do, mm-hmm. like this for you. Yeah. You know, it's – I'm not surprised, but I definitely am impressed. For me, it's more about training my eye to see things and – and just that natural understanding of the way that I can I can see the world or just understand what why I like something. I think a lot of people will say, I like that, but they don't really know why they like a certain thing. And for me, it's it's a tricky balance. I think we all face this, but it's not about having like the, the latest gear and like some I didn't rent some like twenty thousand dollar red camera. It's like I have this camera that's a micro four thirds, it's probably five or six years old, decent lens, like decent enough setup. But really what it comes down to is nobody's going to like or dislike that video based on what camera I had. It was more about how I communicated, how it was shot, what was the story behind it? Did that story connect with people or did it not? And getting past some of like the gear and tech and tutorial stuff, that's where a lot of people seem to stop. It's like, I can use this camera really well. It's like, mm-hmm. but you can't tell a story with it. Like it's got to be more than the gear. And again, I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal. Like everything I do is perfect, but I do know there's forums and forums and forums of like people debating audio and video gear and like what did you actually make with it what did you create what did what story are you trying to tell with it and a lot of times it comes back to it's just talking about gear or just talking about code and like all of these techniques and not actually building something so i like to see people that build things regardless of it's if it's an iphone video or if it's a full-on produced video yeah well all too often do we get kind of gear crazy like I got to know what Jeff's setup is. What does he have on his desk? Yeah. I can be Jeff if I just know what kind of machine he uses or camera he's used. And then that's a part of the story. The other part is the passion and showing up and fine tuning the craft and getting through the suck and, you know, saying no to a thousand things, you know, caring about those thousand true fans, slow and steady, sweating the details. Like that's the stuff that I think is the value, not just simply like, oh, I use this camera or this lens and this light and with this angle, with this aperture, whatever. And so you can go and do two. Sure, you can, but it's not just simply the specs, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, taking taking time to hone your craft is different than learning a new skill, right? Like somebody could teach me how to play the trumpet in probably a couple of days. I'd be terrible at it though. Like 
it takes a lot of time to keep working, keep perfecting one thing. And in a world where there's a million options to do everything and we can pick up any type of skill, I can be a coder, I can be a photographer, I can be an actor, that people don't stick with something long enough to really perfect it. And then when you see people that have and you see professional athletes, professional musicians, you're like, man, they're amazing. But you don't see the 22 years that they've been just sweating it out, literally like sweating it out to get to that place to finally be recognized for it Mm -hmm. because people don't want to spend that much time doing anything. Well, if it was easy, everyone would do it. Exactly. Isn't that right? Exactly. Let's put some urgency on the audience then for those who are like, man, I'm sold. Take my money, Jeff. How can you take their money? I'm just kidding. Lots of ways. How can they get involved with Analog? Like, what's the next step? I know it's in Kickstarter right now. Mm-hmm. You know, you, listeners might be listening to this after the fact. I don't know. So how did, like, let's say they're listening to it pre-Kickstarter being mm-hmm. over and then post-Kickstarter being over. Like, what is the process, tiers? What do you say? Yeah, we'll make it easy. So ugmonk.com slash analog. So it's U-G-M-O-N-K dot com slash analog. A-N-A-L-O-G. And that, that will forward you to the Kickstarter if you're, watch, if you're listening to it now. And then after the Kickstarter, that will forward you to a page on our site where we're going to continue selling analog. But the Kickstarter will be the best price, the best option to get in. We're offering you know, special deals and perks to the people that get in early while the campaign is running. But we do plan on turning this into a long-term thing where we're going to be selling these cards, the card holders on our site, even thinking about doing a subscription and things like that for you get automatic refills on a monthly basis, um, those kind of things. But you can check out the whole campaign if you just go to that URL. Interesting. Refills. I like that. I think to ask you about that. How do people get refilled? Well, we'll definitely put those links in the show notes so that uh, those listening can follow along. And you reminded me of one question I didn't actually get to ask you about analog, and I can't stop there because i got to have this question answered, is uh, you mentioned before about like what to focus on, right? Like the biggest challenge is, that you face, one of the biggest ones, like I got lots of ideas, but which one should I do? Which one should I do next? So we kind of know the story of analog, but more particularly, how did you know you should have done it? And how did you know other people would appreciate it? Like, what were those things that you did? Did you have like a committee of people, a cohort of people? It was like, I'm trying this, Jeff. I love it. Did you refine it with other people or was it simply in isolation? Uh, it was a little bit of both. So because I've been using index cards for so long, I thought originally it was too simple of an idea to even launch because people can pick up index cards and basically replicate what I'm doing with analog right now. And if they want to do that, that's totally fine. But we're using you know nicer paper, it comes, comes with the stand, it has the bullets already ready for you. It's this framework and structure to get you thinking about it. Like It serves one purpose, whereas an index card, we all have stacks of them, but they can serve any purpose. So I knew that there was something there because I kept going back to it and it kept helping me. Like I'd try a new to-do app, and then like a week later, I'd want to switch. I'd try a new task manager, then I'd switch. And the index card kept being a thing for me. So I started sending out samples to friends once I printed up a short run, being like, hey, do you want to try this thing out? This is what it's doing doing for me. Tell me what you think. And just had a small group of friends testing it. And like nine out of 10 of them were like, hey, when do I get more cards? And I'm like, okay, I'm onto something. Like I'm using these cards this way and this is how it's helping me. Like, And these aren't just random people. They were like people that you know, in high performing roles and had a lot of responsibilities and things like that. And that really validated it past just me saying, this helps me. And beyond that, it was like, well, let's go for it. I think this is going to help a lot of people. 
on that note, then, did you anticipate the idea of refills or was that sort of discovered as part of that process? I mean, because you're writing on a physical card and it's not erasable and reusable, uh, we knew that, that there was an option to do something like a subscription. So part of the business that's different is that it's going to be a very low price point compared to Gather and compared to a lot of other things we sell on our site. But the idea is to bring people back through our doors and say, hey, are you ready for more analog cards? If you found it useful, it's basically going to be a no-brainer to keep using it. You know, for We haven't decided on the price, but for somewhere around 10 bucks a month, if this is actually helping you get work done, it should be a no-brainer. Boast about some of the numbers too real quick. I mean, I've been following you on Instagram. I check your Instagram stories. Now, by no means am I even on Instagram every day. I check in maybe like three times a week. I don't post anymore. I'm weird. I've sort of like backed away from social media in that in that regard, but I still lurk, which means I still pay attention to certain people, and you're one of them, at least as of recent with analog and your your frequency going up and stuff like that. But I've seen like smaller numbers and then this excitement of like bigger numbers and now like a much bigger number now, which is like just huge. Those are your numbers. You share them. Yeah, so we're at 3,448 backers as the time of the recording. So hopefully that's even higher by the time people are listening. But and three hundred and five thousand two hundred and eighty four dollars raised for this campaign. So we still have two weeks left, and uh, it's honestly it's gone as good as it could possibly go. And I'm super stoked on how people are responding to the campaign. Are these numbers you expected? Are you blown away? Are you just happy? All the above. I'm blown away. I mean, like, yeah. I mean, this this is again. Trying not to be overconfident, but we knew that there would be some level of success with analog because we had run Gather and had done one other Kickstarter. But this is way beyond, like, this is the top of the top, you know, scenarios that we played out and calculated and figured out. And you you kind of have to be ready for it to not hit that, but then for it to blow past it. And just to see how many people are really wanting to buy in as a system. They they really want analog to be here for for the long term. And the questions we're getting asked are, well, I live you know, in the UK. Will you have refills available over there? I want to make sure I'm getting enough cards for a whole year. Like All of these questions of like, people see the value in this before they've even had it. Um, and 90% of the pledges involve more than just the cards. They're buying the card holder with it. So that was like the big surprise was how many people see this as, I want this on my desk. I want to buy the cards and I want refills long term. And that's where I'm like, this is that's exactly what we would love to see. Mm-hmm. That's so cool, man. All right, Jeff, I have two final questions for you. The first question is my super secret question. It goes like this. What's on the horizon for you that no one knows about or not many people know about that you can share here today? And the second question is my biggest lesson learned question. When you give advice from your journey, Jeff, what's the one thing you hold on to? That one lesson that's near and dear to your heart. We'll get those answers from you in just a second, Jeff. But hey, audience, if you want to hear Jeff's answers, you have to be a ChangeLog Plus Plus subscriber. Join ChangeLog Plus Plus and make the ads disappear, plus get extended content like this and so much more. Head to changelog.com slash plus plus to become a subscriber. Jeff, thanks so much for your time today, man. It's been many years. I'm glad to finally get you on Founders Talk. I'm glad to dig through a lot of this stuff. I'm sure we could have covered so much more. So hopefully one day you'll say yes to coming back again. We'll have more to discover and more to talk about. Maybe the next analog, the next big thing. Uh, But seriously, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to, to have this conversation with you. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me on. All right, that's it for this episode of Founders Talk. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, I mentioned it before. Change Law Plus Plus is so cool. We have big plans. It's so early right now. 
but you can be a supporter for us get closer to the metal make the ads disappear get extended content check it out changelog.com slash plus plus we'd love to have you as a member and of course you can still help us out by sharing this show with a friend tweet it put in a list of your favorite podcasts leave us a rating and review all these things help podcasts grow and it's awesome for you to help huge thanks to our partners who get it linode fastly and rollbar also thanks to break master cylinder for making all of our awesome beats thanks again for tuning in we'll see you next time